Nagarjuna, one of the great teachers of emptiness. Once wrote, the Buddha speaks of self and also teaches no self. Between the two, life flows. And these lines do raise the challenge or the mystery, we might say, that we are all asked to embrace. The invitation at the heart of this path to discover and to rest in a profound freedom that has no limits. And yet simultaneously to live fully in this life, to embody that freedom in all our moments, in all the events and experiences. Enlightenment was not the end of the Buddha's story. We need to read on. When he got up from the Bodhi tree, he re-entered a world that was essentially unchanged by his awakening. Still had a body, subject to the frailty and changes and pains that all bodies can experience. Still had a mind with all the thoughts, memories, images. Still had a heart, an emotional life. He re-entered a world that was still full of tragedy and beauty, of the pleasant and the unpleasant, and all the people that he engaged with through his life many of them who spent most of their time arguing with him. We entered a world of experiences and events of which he was not in control, moments of sadness, delight. And yet he often described himself as a Tathagata, someone who has gone beyond. Not someone who has gone beyond life, but someone who has gone beyond suffering. He was changed. His way of being radically altered and learned to live that transformation in the midst of life. Nowhere did he ever counsel to deny this body, heart, or mind. Nowhere did he ever counsel to deny this life. Nowhere did he ever counsel to annihilate or to transcend anything but to turn towards life, to understand it, to live fully within it, to learn within our lives, to embody a very profound wisdom, compassion, freedom. One of the stories, a favorite story of mine that illustrates this, is when a young mother came to the Buddha, (coughs) cradling in her arms her infant who had died, and beseeched the Buddha to bring her child back to life, to reverse the events. In responding to her, he in no way tried to demean her grief. Her heart that was so broken didn't tell her it was wrong to weep or that she should go beyond it, but instead invited her to go into the village to knock at the door of every house 
and to bring back a mustard seed from the house where no one had ever died. And of course, when she went from house to house in the village, no one could answer no to her question of have you ever lost anyone you loved. Counsel to understand life, the capacity to find a deepening compassion and understanding in grief and sorrow, and to understand, of course, that she was not alone. To be alive is to experience a vast spectrum of feelings, emotions, events that touch us all. This is what makes us human. It is what connects us to feel, to love, to lose, to delight, to grieve, to laugh, to weep. If we were to go out in the world and try to bring back a mustard seed from the home of someone who had never experienced fear, sadness, or loss, or heartache, we would also return empty-handed. And it's here because this is what life is. Asked to find great wisdom and freedom. Enlightenment doesn't fix life. It's not a shelter that protects us or defends us from being touched deeply. Liberation doesn't protect us from the changing events and experiences that we meet in our lives. It doesn't deliver a perfect world. Enlightenment doesn't hold the promise that forever on we're going to only experience pleasant and delightful sights and sensations and emotions, or that we're only going to meet pleasant and delightful people and events. Sometimes I think we we come to practice and almost think that mindfulness is a solution to the unpleasant, not a solution the unpleasant. Instead, liberation and deep wisdom invite us to be really fully in our bodies and minds and hearts and lives and to know a way of being in which we're not governed or bound by events and not governed and bound by suffering. Liberation actually invites us to embrace the imperfect, to embrace the simple truths of our lives, and also to have the willingness to see beneath the surface and the appearance of all things, but to learn how to embody freedom, to deeply treasure well-being and harmony of all life, including ourselves, to act and speak and respond with integrity and care and compassion, respect, within all the beings and forms we encounter, to learn how to see the Buddha nature in all things. The world of the absolute and the world of the relative are intrinsically interwoven. As Nagarjuna again put it, he says, life is no different than nirvana. Nirvana is no different than life. Life's horizons are nirvanas. The two are exactly the same. The moment that we try to make 
even the slightest separation between freedom and the very real world of events and people and experiences, then we fall into futile and deluded activity that only exhausts us. And we say this is worldly, this is spiritual, this is mundane, this is elevated. We will only become frustrated. We all must ask ourselves what we do with a life that won't go away. The moment that we divide heaven and earth, the unconditioned from the conditioned, liberation from the very real nature of life, then, of course, that in that division, we, we fall into an abyss of judgment and suffering and prejudice. The same struggle and pain that lies in the separation and, and the divide between I and you and us and them, we see that separation is always the breeding ground for pain and conflict. Sometimes we do this. We, we, we continue to think that liberation must be somewhere else. I mean, surely not here. You know, when you sit in this body, you sit with a mind that can be so wild, of course we think, well, it's not here. It's after. It's later. It's after we've fixed it, changed it, modified it. So then, of course, what we do is we make liberation into a goal apart from this. And this is a very real schism we can hold in ourselves. And it's a a continuing schism that leads us to kind of hold ourselves in a slightly aversive or rejecting way. Liberation becomes a goal that then is dependent on getting rid of things, making ourselves perfect transcending our bodies, minds, and worlds. And, our, and then we live in this world where we have problems. You know, we've got obstructions, obstacles, things that seem to get in the way of our freedom. And, you know, most people, if they sat down were asked to write a list, it would be a long one. You know, what gets in the way of my freedom? My commitments, the... Um, the, the, all the things we're asked to respond to and care for and, you know, my mortgage and my termites. You know, it's like, a, it's, a, it's like a million things we can create into this obstacle mind. Then, then, of course, we start to get this idea, you know, that liberation is only kind of for those who retire to a cave or a monastery, you know. But we they talk to a new monk or nun. You ask them, they, they, they've got it all. They've got it all. At times, our way of dealing with these apparent obstacles is to try and modify and perfect our personality and, and mind, to forge a mind and heart that's somehow worthy of enlightenment. And the task, we've spoken about this many times, the task of perfection is really endless. It is really, really endless. It's a destination we never, never reach. Our list of obstacles, as many as we let go of, that is as many as the new ones that we gather and accumulate. And then so too does we get caught in those polarities of striving and rejection. 
Mary Oliver, I think there's a lovely poem about this. It says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Despite our efforts, life is not going to go away. Despite our efforts to polish and perfect ourselves, imperfections will come once more to shake our hand. As long as we are turning away from them, then liberation remains on a distant horizon. It's really good to realize the error of mistaking perfection for freedom. It's really good to realize the futility and the frustration born that lives within endless striving and rejection. Because to surrender that dualism, that's often really what allows us to turn towards this life, to take our place very fully in the moment in the family of things, in our hearts and minds. As long as we are caught in the idea of obstacles, of problems, it's difficult to find a home anywhere. When we can let go of that whole notion of obstacles and difficulties, then we can turn towards notions of separation. We can turn towards suffering we can turn to learn to melt the solidity of the divisions between freedom and a sense of confinement, to melt the divisions between self and other, to melt the divisions between nibbana and samsara. Samsara is often described as wandering in a dream. And nibbana is also sometimes described as waking up from a dream. It's not that life disappears in that waking up. It's the dream, or what is sometimes even the nightmare. Waking up from the dream doesn't mean then that we disappear into some disembodied realm, separate and apart from life. In fact, it's the opposite. Waking up from the dream means that we come to know what it means to be fully embodied, to be alive, vital, a conscious participant in our world, responsive, creative, and above all, compassionate. 
Enlightenment doesn't destroy the self. It destroys the dream that is sometimes called wrong view. The sense of self or belief of who we are, our bodies, our feelings, our perceptions, our intentions, our minds, our histories, none of these in truth are obstacles to enlightenment. The obstacle we might say to liberation, if there is one at all, is wrong view. The whole accumulation of beliefs, delusions, that gather and solidify over time. The Buddha described wrong view as believing this is self, this belongs to self. This is me, this belongs to me. And why it's called wrong view is because these beliefs permeate all the countless moments and experiences of our lives. And those beliefs, this is self, this belongs to self, this is mine, this belongs to me, well, try and find anger and fear and greed and delusion apart from these. Try and find suffering and conflict apart from these beliefs. Quite difficult. The Buddha also went on to encourage us to cultivate right view, or wise view, called wisdom. Often the encouragement in the suttas is to go to the forest, to go to the foot of a tree, to go to a hut, and to reflect. This is empty of self. This is empty of what belongs to self. This is liberating the heart and mind through understanding emptiness. Now we need to translate those words into a very intuitive and felt understanding. It's not enough just to hold them as a theory. Perhaps sometimes we we catch just a glimmer of the radical transformation that wise view or wisdom can give birth to. If we lived in that understanding of this is not me, this does not belong to me. If we bring that into the world of our experience, our thoughts, our bodies, our aching knee, all the things we surround ourselves with, Think of what it would mean to bring that understanding into the world of your experience today. The times you might have felt despair or anger or hurt or fear. The times when you felt to be a a casualty of the turbulent mind or a painful body. Notice what happens if you hold those experiences very tightly. You know, this this is me. (laughs) This is who I am. This is all who I am. This belongs to me. And when you do that, you can sense how totally immediately the heart and the mind and the world and our consciousness become so tight and contracted. And all the struggles then that get born of that tightness and contraction. I have to be different. I have to have a different experience because this is mine. If I alter my experience, I'm going to alter me. If I manage to possess another experience then I'm going to have a better, improved self. Now, you might have also had moments today 
where the same thoughts or the same feelings or the same aching knee can arise and they're held in a very different way. Where there's a lot of space around them and maybe some understanding. This is not me. This does not describe me. This does not belong to me. Suddenly it's a very different world. There's no blame. There's no struggle. There's no fear. And that doesn't mean that the knee stops aching or the mind stops thinking. But there's no contractedness. There's a great openness. The freedom of embracing what is happening, of being fully engaged, fully caring, fully embodying that freedom in the moment. The primary key to understanding the interwoven threads of the absolute and relative of nirvana and samsara is to begin to understand emptiness. Not a state, not an experience, not a place, but a way of seeing and understanding that pervades how we receive the world. Emptiness is sometimes used as a synonym for freedom. A freedom that is embodied everywhere. Hui Neng once put it, emptiness includes the sun, moon, stars, and planets, the great earth, mountains, and rivers, all trees and grasses, good people, bad people, good things and bad things, heaven and hell. They are all in the midst of emptiness. For 500 years after the Buddha's death, he was often remembered as emptiness, sometimes portrayed as an empty seat, as a pair of footsteps in the sand, as a tree, a great tree with no one sitting beneath it, yet also fully human, engaged and dynamic, dedicated to the end of suffering. It's very noticeable the Buddha didn't retire when he got up from the Bodhi tree. The great teachers of the past and the present who have deeply inspired us and touched us, they inspire us not just because some of some neat or profound experience under a Bodhi tree or on a mountaintop or under a de- in a desert. The great teachers who inspire us from the past and present inspire, inspire us through the way in which they embody their understanding through the grace and freedom and commitment and compassion that they bring to life. It seems that beginning to understand the emptiness of a fixed and isolated and separate self is an open door through which we enter life, both the beautiful and the tragic, the sad and the joyful, the harsh and the calm. And we can learn to go through that door without prejudice, consciously participating, engaged. But it's almost a way of emptiness engaging with emptiness. Emptiness, first of all, is not negative. Sounds like a theory, but it's no different than life. And emptiness is given reality and meaning through bringing, it, through bringing that understanding directly into our lives, 
in everything that we experience and believe. I have an example. Conventionally, we call this a rose. We don't imagine it. It's here. If I hold it really tightly, I wouldn't imagine my hand being pricked by the rose. I wouldn't imagine that it's painful. The blood that might flow down my palm, it's not an illusion. It is a flower. And yet with the concepts and all the associations, it becomes a very solid thing, doesn't it? It looks very solid. It's really apart and separate from me. And it's separate and apart from all the other things. The flower is certainly not a microphone. With our admiration and attraction, we can jump into the world of wanting. We'd like to to possess it. It might look good on me. I mean, I wear it in my hair. We could imagine how it might enhance ourselves. We might be really disappointed when it begins to fade. We admire its beauty. We'd like to cherish it as our own, or we could really be upset when our hand is punctured by the thorns, we could throw it out the window. We could blame it for our pain. There's a lot of things we could do with this rose. We do it with everything. Look again at the flower. It's actually Emptiness with clothes on. It's actually an embodiment of emptiness. The flower is clearly a flower. On one level, it does exist. It's not a rabbit. It's not an onion. And yet the... This flower really can't be separated from the legacies of condi- legacy of conditions from which it emerged. The rain, the sun, the earth, they're all in this flower. Without them, the flower wouldn't be. The flower is not just a word. It's also formed by all these things, by, by petals, by 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 the leaves, by the branch. It's formed by all of these things. If we dissect this, if I pull this apart, is that a rose? Not a rose. If we pull it apart, it's what we have are all the components of what makes a flower. It's a collection of those components. It can't be separated from those components. It's a collection of them. The life of the flower is not independent of the conditions. Whether we pull it apart, whether we pluck it or not, this flower is going to fade and it's going to die. And it's going to become one of the conditions from which a weed or a head of lettuce will grow. It's not an esoteric principle. It's quite simple. It's quite easy for us to understand. Yet it's an understanding that has very profound implications. 
The Buddha said that all things arise because of conditions. What does that mean when we translate that into our lives? That all things arise because of conditions. Dogen once said, meditation is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. So let's take apart this. Study the I. Study the sense of self. It's to study the separation. Of course, in our lives, we really have a very great fascination with ourselves. You know, who I am, what I like and what I dislike, what I want, what I don't want, what I fear, what I love. You know, the list goes on and on. It feels very much as if this whole energy, this whole entity is at the core of our lives governing how we see our happiness and our unhappiness. Mostly it's an unconscious preoccupation. Mostly we're so busy actively interpreting, securing, modifying, protecting, asserting, controlling this central core that we rarely take the time to explore it. Yet this is what we do in practice. It's what we do in meditation. In our practice, just by being mindful, by slowing down, we move intentionally from that very confined and agitated world of self-consciousness to intentionally be aware or to be conscious of self. So we kind of turn that around a little bit. Instead of being driven by self-consciousness, we turn it around to be conscious of self. And a good exercise is to look for yourself. To look for yourself. It's, it's just an interesting exercise. Find yourself. Find your sense of self. If we search for a sense of self, it's like trying to pinpoint or fix a shadow. It's always changing. It's always fleeting. Each time we think we know it, it changes into something else. Each time we think we're so sure, now this is who I am. Oh, this is who I am. You know, this is really who I am. Changes into something else. Since we woke up this morning, how many selves have you had? sad one, the fearful one, the peeved one, the irritated one, the generous one, the grateful one. Such a lot. To say, you know, sometimes it's so, of course, convincing. Hours later, we're equally convinced by something else. We experience these these changes, and yet somehow we get more subtle in our self-consciousness. And we think, well, I'm the experiencer. That's it. That's it. I'm aware. The sense of self even tries to hijack awareness. And yet awareness is aware of self. So how can self be awareness? If awareness is aware of the arising of that sense of self, how can awareness be self? 
It can't. In fact, it may really be true that this, it is quite impossible to define this sense of self at all. That all we can find, of course, what we take hold of. And it's also not nothing, our sense of self. I mean, my sense of being this body, my mind, my history, my feelings, they're just... It's not like they're just interchangeable. It's not like there's absolutely nobody home on that level. <laughs> you know, they're not interchangeable with, with, with yours. Yours are not interchangeable with somebody else's. You have a kind of unique expression and appearance in this world. But it's a good question. Do any of these changing experiences we've had today, this, all the different ways we've felt ourselves to be, are any of them actually an obstruction to freedom? No. Because they all arise from conditions too. The me who might have been afraid, it rests on the interplay of conditions that give rise to that experience. You know, maybe somebody's been offensive or hurtful. Maybe that has triggered a whole realm of associations of previous rejections, and I have a rejected self. It is built upon the conditions of that moment. If I have a moment of anxiety and anxious thought, and I take hold of that, and I, I bring, bring in all the other building blocks of association, of resistance or of holding, then I've got the anxious self of that moment. But it's all born of conditions, and many of those conditions began before we were even born. The conditions are an unfolding process, their beginnings untraceable. To imagine the beginning and ending of conditions is where we get stuck. That's when we say, this is myself, this is me, this is belongs to me, this is who I am. That's because we've imagined the beginning and the ending of the conditions. It's like endeavoring to freeze the flow of life. To understand on a moment-to-moment level the matrix of unfolding conditions is to see the emptiness at the core of any belief in self. Then we see, this is not me, this does not belong to me. Only by fixing and isolating and grasping the conditions of the moment can we arrive at a sense of I am. The more we probe this sense of I and me, which is equally to probe the sense of other and you, To probe the sense of I and me is to probe the sense of separateness and apartness. The more we probe that, it begins to open. It becomes something of a mystery, an unanswered question, and this is really a delightful place to rest. It doesn't have to have an answer. Instead of going through our life saying, I am, We can also go through our life saying, am I? To to melt the freezing a a little. Years ago when I lived in London, 
One of my favorite places to go was the planetarium. And I don't know if you've ever been to one of those planetarium things, you know, but you go in and they, they turn off all the lights. It's completely dark. And then suddenly the night sky lights up. It, it's really, it's a recreation of the night sky. And it's like you're out there on the top of a hill with, you know, this totally clear sky, it, it, this cloudless sky, and there's all these glittering sky, stars. And they tell you the story of this, each of the stars. And it, they're quite beautiful and quite numberless. And then they also tell you that most of the stars you're looking at have already died. <laughs> They've ceased to exist. That the time it took the image of the star to travel through space until we could see it, what we were actually seeing was an impression of something that had already gone by. And nor could we see the new stars being born or in the process of being born. Now that information, of course, didn't diminish the sense of wonder and appreciation at the sky that was being looked at. But it made, us, made me realize that looking at this universe, I was looking at the stars that were and also the stars that were not. And both were real. And both were coexisting in this kind of sublime harmony. It was also then seeing that the stars... The, the, there was a the notion of the star, but the stars themselves were ungraspable. Only the notion of the star was graspable. The stars themselves were ungraspable. And it's a kind of image that stayed through with me through life, that the way that all the forms and all the appearances, all the sights and sounds and, and touches and tastes born of conditions, changing into other conditions, our bodies, our feelings, our minds, our thoughts, they are all ungraspable. They have an appearance, and yet no core solid reality. That there's nothing in the world like the stars that stands alone, that can really be separated from anything else. This this exploration, it can be a beginning of a very deep understanding of this is not me. This does not belong to me. This is not self. This does not belong to self. This is not you, nor does it belong to you. It's kind of like opening a door. It's like breathing out instead of just breathing in. And we, we can learn to live that understanding to, to not to try to grasp the ungraspable. It is to liberate ourselves from struggle and sorrow. It is to release joy and freedom. It's to see that all things are emptiness and a reflection of emptiness. So one piece I'd like to close with says... Do not seek fame. Do not be a storehouse of schemes. Do not be an undertaker of projects. Do not be an owner of wisdom. 
embody to the fullest what has no end and wander where there is no trail. Hold on to all that you have received from heaven, but do not think you have gotten anything. Be empty, that is all. We have a couple of moments again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.